From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, a new economic indicator found that Baton Rouge has finally recovered from pandemic-era job losses. Andrew Fitzgerald, Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence for BRAC, tells us what this means for the city's economy. But first... After years of trying to track down their grandfather's publications, two cousins from Maryland, Sharon Young and Renee Anderson, finally found what they were looking for at LSU libraries. They not only discovered a signed first edition copy of their grandfather's book of poetry, but even found a broadside of his poem, Sleep On. But this is just one example of how LSU Libraries is bringing families together and connecting them with their past. For more information on the real-world impact of LSU Libraries, we're joined by Miss Sharon and Miss Renee. Thank you both for coming on today. Thank you for having us. We're also joined by LSU Libraries Curator of Books, John Miles. John, thank you also for being here. Thank you. Miss Sharon and Miss Renee, let's start with the two of you. You were looking to track down publications from your grandfather, Harry Wilson Patterson. What exactly were you looking for, and how did you come to connect with LSU Libraries? It started last year in October. I am writing my autobiography, and I thought about my grandparents, and a feeling just came over me about my my grandfather and I, see, my, I just went back in time and I could just remember um, it was a, the vibration of him writing a poem called Sleep On. I was about 11 years old at the time, but the vibe was strong. And I says, OK, where should I start my research? And something said, well, why don't you start at the Library of Congress? I said, oh, gee, they'll probably laugh me off the telephone. But they didn't. And they started sending me links, and then they sent me a, a picture, and then they said, oh, by the way, you know your father wrote a book called Gems of a Soul. I said, I do remember hearing that as a child, but I didn't know what it was really all about. And he says, okay, it's at the Moreland Spingarn uh, Research Center. I said, well, where is that? They said, Howard University. I said, wow, that's right up the street from where I live. And so that's how it really, really began. Um, One thing led to another. I alerted my cousin Renee what I was doing. I sent her a picture of my grandfather. And she says, hey, maybe we can join together and research together. I said, hey, that would be wonderful. Why not work as a team? And then um, a cousin of ours was out of town and he went over to Howard University And he searched for Gems of the Soul, but he couldn't find it. Um, He could see that it had been cataloged, but we don't know where the book is. So I called back to the contact person at Library of Congress. And as I was talking, he said, Sharon, don't worry about it. He said, call LSU. He says, uh, they have information about your grandfather. So he gave me the web page and the catalog number and here we huh. are. Well, Ms. Renee, I'll let you pick up from there. Once you were connected with the library system, what did you find? And, and did you find any additional books by your grandfather? Well, I want to go back just a little tidbit. It's been over 50 years as a family that we've been looking. And it just so happened that when Cousin Sharon started her own autobiography, the ancestors started coming up in her and saying, remember about Pop-Pop? 
And that's kind of how that tied in. But as a family, we have all been blaming each other. Where's the book? You had it last. <laughs> no, I was only 10. Well, you were 15. Why don't you know where it is? So it's been a family, somewhat of a joke, but yet on a serious note, as we got older and could appreciate what that really meant, it began the search. So once the LSU project happened and I we called, uh, we called Mr. Miles and it went in the voicemail. Well, two women on a project were like, we can't wait for Mr. Miles. We're going to just call the <laughs> library itself. And Miss Aaliyah just happened to be walking, walking by, by the desk <laughs> and answered the phone and said who she was. And my quote to her was, Miss Aaliyah, have you done a miracle today yet? <laughs> and she said, uh, excuse me. I said, we need a miracle. We were told that our book was there, blah, blah, blah. And she says, okay, give me the name. She looked it up. She came back. She said, yes, we have it. I said, no, I need you to touch it because <laughs> someone else told us they had it. And when we got there, they didn't have it. So it was her touching the book and knowing that it was there under this 800 collection of um, Mr. Day that affirmed for us that it was really there. And we got her so excited herself. She really became personally involved. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a family mystery that's beginning to be solved right there with those that initial yes. contact. Yes. And so while we're waiting for Miss Aaliyah to give us some more information, she told me Mr. Day's name and the name, the name of the, the book collection. And I must say, I the, the it was just too much. I couldn't wait. <laughs> so again. Again. So so I called Miss I looked up Mr. Day. And a number came and I honestly knew it was some high ranking office that I would probably get the runaround. And it was him that answered the phone, sitting in his living room, looking at TV. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And I told him who I was and what I had found. He stopped everything. He said, oh, my goodness, this is such wonderful news because this is what I wanted to happen with my collection, mm. that someone or somebody's would be touched by it. Wow. And we like opened up the can for him. He helped us look for the book on other websites, trying to find other copies. We've mm -hmm. talked at least two or three times. So he's our older uncle now. <laughs> oh, I love and it. He is such an impressionable personal man. He told us probably how he found our book. He told us how we could continue to look other places. So it just became overwhelming in our spirit, the whole thing. And we know this same story can be repeated in family after family. John, let's go to you. You work as the curator of books at LSU Libraries. Tell us about this collection that you work with. How, how old are these books and where are they from? How do you find, how do these different books, even this day collection, how did it find its way to LSU? The day collection really is one of these remarkable stories um, that, you know, I was looking for a specific book, early 19th century novel. This was back during the kind of the the, the tightest of lockdowns in, in the summer of 2020. Um, Mr. Day didn't have that book, but we got into a conversation. He said, well, I have this other thing. Um, by the way, this uh, what, what he thought was one of the, if not the most complete um, collection of private, privately held collection of African-American poetry in the United States. Um, and I said, yes, absolutely. We would be, we would be interested in that. Um, 
And then he let us know about about how much it was going to cost and how you know the value of it. And, and I said, well, that would be I'll I'll talk to someone else about this. Um, eventually, one thing led to another, and and, and um, one of the in coming in thinking about our priorities going forward here at the library, one of the things we really want to do is think about like the the wide population, the the diversity of the population that we serve. Um, and so we talked more and more, and it's the more I talked to, to to Mr. Day about his collection, about all of the different aspects um, that came together in that collection from Phyllis Wheatley's 18th century, kind of the first book of African-American poetry, um, down through um, down through any number of poets that are particularly important in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, our Dean Stanley Weiler just really decided that this was something that we needed to have, um, that, that really our students would respond well to this, the community would respond well to this. Um, and so eventually in the December of 2021, we actually um, purchased the collection uh, and it showed up in January. Uh, one of the things that is just rather remarkable in terms of coincidences is the book that, that, that they're referring to, um, was just cataloged at the beginning of December. So it was just put into the international database of books um, only maybe three weeks before um, they were actually looking for the book. And then when they talked to the Library of Congress, the librarian at the Library of Congress, uh, it was just pure luck that uh, that the book had shown up in the catalog um, and that the, that librarian was, was able to direct direct them to us. Um, and we could find both first the the first the book of poetry and the broadside as well. Timing is everything, and and it goes back to what you were saying there, Ms. Sharon. I mean, this is is sort of a miraculous unfolding here for you and for your family. We are speaking with Sharon Young and Renee Anderson, who recently used LSU libraries to track down poetry written by their late grandfather, and also John Miles, who's the LSU library's curator of books. Miss Sharon, Miss Renee, what were some of your favorite poems uh, that you discovered by your grandfather? And what did you learn about him and your family in this process? Well, we both would probably say Sleep On, which was the poem that the Navy released in honor of those that gave their lives at Pearl Harbor, along with uh, photographs that he, not photographs, but artwork that he attached to that. And that is one of the broadsides that Mr. Miles has in his collection. That, that was a bonus that we found that as well. But he actually, uh, it was in his obituary that he actually wrote the poem for Captain Merwin, M-E-R-W-Y-N-S, like Sam, Binion, B-E-N-N-I-O-N. He was actually writing the poem for him in some kind of way they just grouped you know, the deceased soldiers along with Mr. Uh, Mr. Binion. And like Renee just said, uh, when he, World War II, when he worked for the Navy Department, uh, he was an artist. He had uh, painted many, we understand, many uh, painting posters for the Department of Defense. And I would like to add, which was the most amazing part of the book, in the beginning of the book, my grandfather does two things that I, I think is just amazing during that era of time. He did a dedication to Black women, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And he did a three-page autobiography about his family that gave us so much information about our family 
that we didn't know about. I grew up in the house with him for 12 years and my cousin uh, came to live with us for a while also. So we knew him, we interact, we were raised, we were influenced, mm -hmm. but there was so much in that autobiography before we ever got to the poems that I must say, I haven't even gotten to many of the poems because I've been so overwhelmed with the autobiography and the history that he was able to give our family. Written. It was like a roadmap mm. for us to go all the way back to 1897. Wow. And to be able to hear about how he left North Carolina mm. and walked, walked for a year to Baltimore with his family. And he was only a little boy of three. A ox cart. With the ox. They well, they started with an ox, ox cart, cart. Mm -hmm. but they, they sold, sold it, it for food because they needed it for food. But Pop Pop, as we affectionately called oh. him, was a was a writer, an artist, a minister, and an amazing singer. And every sermon that he preached, he always sang either before or after. And we were little girls with pigtails in the back seat, all up and down the DMV area because he was a traveling minister as he did these sermons. There were no roads, you know, there were there were no, no highways. There were no expressways. <laughs> so we would get in the backseat of the car, go all over the country with him as a minister, traveling minister and be the guest of honor after every service because people wanted to bring the pastor home for dinner or for lunch before mm -hmm. they put us back on the road. Wow. So between that and this book and the, the broadsides and his singing and poor, I mean, he was just, he was an amazing person as we continue to read and learn more about him. All the things we thought we knew when we read that autobiography. It was just a scratch of the surface. John, I mean, you've helped other families find the publications and the works of long lost loved ones. Have there been any other stories of, of making these kinds of connections that you could tell us about? No, we've really just started to use the collection. Um, it's just getting cataloged now. So we're really looking forward to making more of these connections in the, in the future, because I think one of the things that, that's so great about the collection, there's about 800, 850 items. Some of them are simply rare books. Some of them are, are books that have inscriptions in them, dedications from one person to another. Um, and the other part of my job is, as I'm the head of instruction in special collections, and it's really my, my job to bring the students to bring them and have them make this connection with the literature. And one way to do that is through the people to remember that these poets are people um, that have families and, and concerns and interests. There's a great piece um, that is, is it's it's a Langston Hughes manuscript. And he in part of the dedication, he signs that to Leroy Jones, who you might know also as Amiri Baraka. And it's really this handoff between the two generations, between the kind of the end of the Harlem Renaissance generation, and the beginning of the Black arts generation. Um, and it's that handoff. And then we can kind of make the make the next step, which is to the students, to the students here at, here at LSU, to the, to the greater Baton Rouge community. And then in what we have an example here is, is where the library really is looking nationally. Um, to make these kind of connections between people. And, and that's really what uh, what amazes me when I get really excited about, about rare books. Well, for anyone that's curious about uh, the LSU Library Collection, how they can get access, what information is available to anyone in the public who's interested? Absolutely. Um, we have about 150,000 rare books and about 10 million manuscript items that are all housed right there at Hill Memorial Library on LSU's campus. We are free and open to the public. Many of our patrons don't have any any sort of kind of 
connection with LSU necessarily, though they might have a deep connection with some of the artists or some of the writers that we have in, in the collection. So we, we really do look to open our doors, not just to all of the graduate students and all of the undergraduates and professors here on campus, but the greater Baton Rouge community, the Louisiana community, the South, and then, of course, nationally as well. We've been talking with Sharon Young and Renee Anderson, who recently used LSU libraries to track down poetry written by their late (laughs) grandfather and John Miles, LSU Library's curator of books. I'd like to thank you all for your time today. Thanks for joining us on Louisiana Considered. Thank you. Thank you all so much. much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Kieran Henderson. According to new data from the Baton Rouge Area Chamber, the Capital Region has recovered the number of jobs lost during the COVID-19 pandemic and then some. The Chamber's monthly economic indicator dashboard examines and analyzes the state of the regional economy and hails this milestone in its latest report. To tell us more about what this means, joining us now is the Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence for BRAC, Andrew Fitzgerald. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's been three years in the making. How has uh, Baton Rouge's job picture evolved during the, the pandemic? And what are the numbers telling you now? Yeah, so the crazy thing is from the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020 to now, we've only had 300 total job change. Before uh, the pandemic, we had 408,400 jobs. Now we're at 408,700 jobs. But obviously, a lot has happened between those two time periods. And so while the whole job market is about the same size, the shape of it has definitely changed. Well, give us a, a, a little more about the picture here. How does the, the mix of jobs differ pre-pandemic versus today? I know, there, I know there are more jobs, but are they in the same sectors and uh, are pre-existing businesses hiring more or are new businesses moving in and hiring? Right. So what we've seen is a few of industries in Baton Rouge have really taken off. Uh, healthcare has added 4,400 jobs since before the pandemic. And leisure and hospitality, you know, bars, restaurants, and hotels, they're actually up uh, 2,500 jobs, which seems crazy. There are more people working at restaurants and bars now than before the pandemic. But those gains were offset with two industries that are still struggling a little bit. You know, as a state capital, government jobs are very important, and we're down about 3,000 government jobs from before the pandemic. On construction, we are in a a region affected by the construction industry more than almost any place else in the country because of the gigantic industrial boom we've seen over the last few decades. So when the pandemic shut down that industrial construction sector, it was shutting down tens of thousands of very high-paying jobs at about $80,000 a year. Uh, So we're down about 5,000 construction jobs, too. So we're up in a lot of industries, but that's being offset by losses in government and construction, which means we're we're about even overall from before the pandemic. All right. So that's the picture here in Baton Rouge. How does it compare, you know, Baton Rouge compare with with other cities in the state, New Orleans, Lafayette? Right. And we are between the two of them geographically, and we're between the two of them in terms of job recovery as well. So Lafayette, as of about October of last year, uh, hit their pre-pandemic job numbers, and they're a little bit above that now. They're they're further above uh, pre-pandemic numbers than Baton Rouge's, and they don't have that kind of glaring gap in government or construction. They're a little bit up in about everything across the board. So they're in a very nice position. 
Uh, New Orleans, on the other hand, is still down about 5,800 jobs overall from pre-pandemic. Um, they're down 6,500 jobs in leisure hospitality, so restaurants, bars, hotels, things of that nature, so meaning that that accounts for pretty much their entire uh, job shortfall from pre-pandemic. So they're still uh, suffering from uh, maybe a lack of travel. It's probably a, a lack of tourism might be part of that. Uh, but we'll see if events like Mardi Gras help them pick that up early in 2023. And, and how's Louisiana compared with the rest of the nation? Is what we're seeing in, in Lafayette and New Orleans and Baton Rouge similar to what we're seeing across the nation? Uh, we are a little bit behind our peer metro areas. This has been a really great period, a great few years for mid-sized metros like your Greenvilles and your Birminghams because people have left big cities and gone to those markets because they're saying, I can work remotely now. I care a little bit more about having more space. I realize being in a studio apartment during COVID is not how I want to live. So it's places like Baton Rouge, Lafayette, and New Orleans have been attractive throughout the country. We haven't necessarily seen the in-migration that some of these other cities have, which is probably the reason why we're doing okay in recovery, but not quite as well as our peers across the nation. We're speaking with Andrew Fitzgerald, the Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence for the Baton Rouge Area Chamber, about a milestone for the Baton Rouge metro area that's regaining the number of jobs lost because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Andrew, what does this news mean for employers and even what does it mean for job seekers? So for employers, it's good because it, it, workforce has been the number one issue for about two years running, uh, according to a survey that we do annually for local business leaders. And the problem is there just aren't enough candidates for the jobs open. There, as of uh, last month, there's about 12,000, 12 to 13,000 people out of work and looking for work. And there's almost 30,000 job openings. So you have more than two job openings for every job seeker. So it's still a very tight labor market, but with the jobs rising, and you can see nationally wage growth is, is getting more steady and not spiking. So it's getting a little bit better for employers out there. and People are returning to the labor force. So still a tough time hiring environment, but it's better than it was six months ago. Well, based on, on today's numbers, what can you expect to see moving forward? And also ask you this, which sectors do you expect to see continued growth? And are there any where you expect losses? So I think we're going to continue to see uh, growth in our strengths, uh, more moderate growth for maybe like healthcare, leisure hospitality, professional services in the capital region. Where I think we're going to see a big increase is construction, because what we've heard anecdotally and what we see boots on the ground is that there is a huge backlog of industrial construction projects. We've announced all these project wins through the pandemic coming into 2023, and nobody's put a shovel in the ground yet because of whether it's interest rates, whether it's just not wanting to be the first mover, whether it's trying to get together a construction workforce. We know engineering firms have a huge backlog of upfront work to do in these projects before the construction actually starts. Once that those come to fruition, we're going to see a big spike in construction hiring and a big spike in construction wages. And that's going to right size the economy and blow past where we're at now in terms of job count. Andrew Fitzgerald, the Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence for the Baton Rouge Area Chamber. Andrew, thanks so much for the information and your time today. Thank you so much for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, Sharon Young and Renee Anderson of Maryland, 
LSU Library Special Collections Curator of Books, John Miles, and Brack Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence, Andrew Fitzgerald. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.